Well, good morning. Welcome to Lifestone Church. We're glad you guys are here this morning. Thank you guys for leading us in worship through music. Uh, we are going to continue. Guess what? Some of you guys will be shocked in the book of Romans, which is, I love it. It's such good stuff. So I'm very excited to, to keep going through that with you. But before we get started, if you're new here, uh, we're glad you're here. We, we've got some new faces here and and uh, we hope that you had a chance to go in the lobby and, and just get uh, a little gift to say, hey, this is how much we are glad that you came here and gave, give you a little bit of information about who we are. Um, the other thing I wanted to share with you guys is, is just in a couple weeks here, uh, we actually, you can already start signing up for these things. We have our fall kind of discipleship stuff happening. We have our life classes and our life groups. All the life classes, all three of them happen on Monday nights. And then life groups are throughout the week. Child care is provided for all of these. Um, and so if you're interested in, in those, we want you guys to, you can check it out more in the lobby. Uh, we watched last week, if you're here with us, a couple previews on the men's study and the women's study. Um, and we're also doing another study with the, that would be the third class. So check out the preview for this. Hi, everybody, and welcome to What on Earth Am I Here For? I'm Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church and the author of the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Now, we're going to begin this 40-day journey by looking at life's three most important questions. The question of existence, why am I alive? The question of significance, does my life matter? And the question of intention, what is my purpose? The only way to know your purpose is to ask your creator who made you, why did you make me, God? Proverbs 9, verse 10 says this, Knowing God results in every other kind of understanding. It all starts with God. And it is all sustained by God. Life is all about God. It's not about you. It's going to be a great journey. God bless you. All right, I know some of you guys have been through that, and uh, it's, it's impacted many, many people. And so that's the other class that you can sign up for. Uh, we're just really excited to, to see what God does in those classes and encourage you guys to get connected and be a part. Let's pray, and we'll jump into God's Word. God, we love you. We thank you for allowing us to come here to worship you, to honor you. This morning, help us make it about you and not about us. God, um, I pray as we, we look at Romans that your truth would... Uh, speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. And God, that, that not only our attitudes and our thinking would change, God, but, but our lives and how we, how we act out our lives, God, would, would truly be impacted by your truth. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you. God, thank you so much for bringing them and drawing them here this, this morning. And I pray that uh, they would know your love by the end of today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. Well, I, like I said, I know I, I don't, I don't want to quit preaching out of Romans, okay? So now some of you guys might like, you know, to look at different things, but uh, it, it's just such a powerful, powerful book. Um, and, and so I'm going to, I've only done this, I think, one other time, uh, but I'm going to quiz you guys. Uh, we, we hit Romans 12, 
And uh, it, there's this huge transition, the therefore transition, or the uh, so what, or and so, because of 11 chapters of what God has done for us. That is the gospel. What God has done, not what we do for God. We respond to what he's done for us. But that doesn't give us all these things that I'm about to quiz you for <laughs> about what happens. So, so we've went, I don't, if you've been with us, if you haven't been with us, please don't feel like you need to share because you, you might be wrong. Um, <laughs> no, you probably wouldn't be wrong, but it, you may be thinking a different track than, than we are. Uh, <laughs> all right, so what are the things God in what he's done and, and his sacrifice and if we accept in faith, as Romans is so clear, that we accept this free gift of salvation through faith, what do we get? I'm going to start us off, okay, with the, I don't know, the one I think most people think of, forgiveness of sins. We're forgiven. All right? What else do we get? Righteousness. We are clothed with, Keely prayed about it, we just sang about it. Not just our, our sins are forgiven, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Incredible. Not just some, you know, random righteousness that God is uh, giving to us and we can kind of uh, lose some of it depending on our, our performance. But, but we are uh, imputed uh, the righteousness of Jesus. What else are we given? Adoption. Um, eternal life. We're, we're, uh, we're given adoption full-on sonship and daughtership of God. We're adopted into his family. Uh, and, little sidebar, while we're here, we're given a family, a, a church family, and other believers to have, uh, to be a part of the family. But, but if we understand where we stand with God in that we are a full son, a full daughter because of what Jesus has done for us. Um, someone else said eternal life. Um, what else? The Holy Spirit. We're given the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit of the living God lives in us. Uh, and, and in that, there's many things, and I may be rounding out the list here a little bit. We're given spiritual gifts as the Holy Spirit lives in us to accomplish what God has created us to do. Um, and with the Holy Spirit, we're given the power, we're given the motivation, we're given the direction that we need to do everything that God's called us to do. Uh, and that kind of ties in with, I'll just end the list here with, um, there's other things we could talk about, but i got to preach a message, okay? Uh, there's a, uh, a purpose in life of, of why we're here and what God wants us to do um, while we're here before we spend eternity in heaven with him. So we're going to look at Romans 13 today, um, just 8 through 10, and then we're going to focus on some chapters that really... Uh, some other, some other uh, places in, in God's Word that, that focus on this thing. So let me read it. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's love. And I want you to think, uh, you know me, if you hear me talk about history, I, I just love history. If there's some, you know, documentary about history or something on, I'm, I'm wanting to stay there, watch that. If Kristen's in the room, we probably have to watch something else. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I do love history, and, and I want you to think about 
the Jewish culture hearing this from Paul. And he's writing to the, this Roman church, a place he hasn't even visited yet, but his primary audience are Jewish people. And they, their whole lives are wrapped up in the law. Everything they're about is the law and trying to fulfill the law and, 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 and be right in God's sight based on this law of 613 laws that we find in the Old Testament. The first 10 are maybe the, the, the most well-known, uh, the Ten Commandments. And, and here, Paul is saying everything, the entire law is, is completed and, the, and fulfilled by, by keeping, or I'm sorry, by loving. But let's back up a little bit. Here's a great example of taking Scripture out of context and misapplying it. Because I've heard this verse, Romans 13, 8, used often as primarily a proof text of financial wisdom. Right? Because it says, owe nothing to anyone. And so we take that and we pluck it out of context and say... This means don't, be, don't get into debt, right? And we do our Google search to find a verse as, as we're trying to maybe teach a study on financial, you know, freedom or something like that. Now, God's word is full of wonderful, beautiful advice about how we should view stuff and things. This verse has nothing to do with that. <laughs> if you read the verses before that we talked about last week, it talked about our obligation of paying taxes to those who are in authority and our obligation to, to uh, follow those who are uh, in authority over us as long as it doesn't, you know, go against God's truth and God's, God's will and plan. And so um, the, the context of this, the, the, the emphasis, of course, is that everything comes down to how we respond to what God's done for us. The list we went through in the beginning is summed up in loving. And it's something I think sometimes we don't put as high a priority as God's word puts. And then we misunderstand what love really is. So we're going we're gonna to discover the biblical definition of what love really is. And we're going to discover just how important this concept of love is. But I've already... I've already maybe made some people frustrated about, you know, saying, hey, this, this isn't a financial verse, okay? So there are, especially in uh, Proverbs, uh, there's some in Psalms, but Proverbs has just tons of verses that basically say, live below your means. And we have a culture that almost continually is, is, is trying to influence us and screaming in our ears, Live above your means. Do everything you can. Go into debt to live above your means. And God's word says that's foolish. It doesn't even call it sinful. It just says it's very unwise and stupid, <laughs> basically. That you're a fool if you, if you do that. And so as we, as we uh, appreciate God's word and the wisdom and the love he has for us, when we are, because I opened the door, I got to talk about some financial stuff, um, that's basically what God's word says to us. Don't live above your means. Don't get caught up in trying to find your life satisfaction out of stuff. And, and I know many of us know that, but we don't live that way. Um, we get confused. The Bible is very clear about what we need and how God will provide what we need. 
But we live in a culture that says you need all this stuff that really is in the want category. And, and I mean, you just think about today. I think this is a good illustration. Today's person in our culture, because we are so blessed in this culture, uh, in this area, and some curses come with it too, but um, the person who lives in poverty in our culture lives better than kings did 200 years ago, right? Indoor plumbing, if you got indoor plumbing, show of hands, indoor plumbing, indoor plumbing, okay, okay. Jake, I'm not going to your house, buddy. Dude, you got a nice house. Um, uh, what else do we have today? Um, everyone has a cell phone. If you're at the lowest end of the uh, kind of poverty spectrum, you still have a cell phone. It's probably nicer than mine. Um, you probably have a car, even if in, in, in our setting here in the West, maybe not in some certain cities, but then you could jump on a bus. Guess what? A king couldn't even jump on a bus 200 years ago, right? Um, we're just so blessed today in what we think are absolutely essentials that we must have, that we can't live without. without. Actually, you know, that's, that's not the case. But what it drives us to do is find satisfaction in those things, and then we live above our means. Sometimes we're trying to impress others, um, and uh, we live in a culture that drives us to pretend, and pretend that we, we're doing better than we really are, and somehow that status is something that fills us up. So hopefully as we walk through Romans and we see who we are in Christ and what he's made us, some of that stuff can kind of... Uh, be dealt with and and not be things that entrap us. So let's focus more on what it it really is focusing on. Verse 9, it goes on to say, For the commands say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is plagiarizing Jesus, which is a really good thing when when you're teaching, right? That that's exactly what Jesus said. And I think so often when we think of religion, we think of following God, we think of what are the things that we need to do to make God happy. As though God needs us and, and is lacking unless we do something. And that that's what following God and, and the rules that we think of for Christianity or, or, or any kind of religious system, that God has these rules because he needs us to do stuff or else he's in bad shape. The God of the Bible is not in bad shape. <laughs> he does not need us to follow certain rules to make him happy or something. He's not in a position of needing something from us. That's a very you know, small view of, of who God really is. But that's often a very religious kind of view of who God is. And so uh, this picture of... And, and as the, Paul listed these things. Do you notice all the things he listed? Who did they have to do with? Not us in our relationship with God directly, but more directly our relationship with others. And that God is deeply concerned and cares about as we've been walking through Romans 12 and 13 of, okay, how do we respond to this incredible gift that we received in faith? It's love people, love people. Care about people. Be kind to people. Be compassionate to people. Respect people. And it's so much 
God is directing us when religion is always like, oh, no, how is God? Is he going to be okay? Am I doing something right with God? Oh, that's settled in 11 chapters of Romans. So now that we know that that's settled and we have nothing to do with it, it was this incredible gift that God did for us. Now we can focus on this more. We don't ignore God. Of course, it's a part of it. But that's really what God's called us to. We talked about last week. If our goal was to be closer to God, we wouldn't still be here as Christians while we're here in this world. That's not the primary focus. Awesome, beautiful thing to have happen. Be closer to God. My pastor said don't be close to God. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Or yes, don't, yeah, say, take that the right way, okay? <laughs> be close to God. But we will be so much closer to God in heaven than we are here now. And so if that was the primary objective and goal that he had for us now, we would be there. But since we're still here, he's got a a purpose and a plan for us to love other people, to show kindness and compassionate, to draw other people to this God who says that he wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance and all to come to him. So, um, So that's why, I mean, you just can't ignore it. We keep going through this, and it's like relationship with others. This is how we love others. This is how you live and respond in the Christian life. Um, Verse 10 says, love does does no wrong to others, so love fulfills requirements of God's law. Again, what's the focus? What is he emphasizing? Others is how we actually love. Um, But love is often opposite. This biblical definition of love is opposite in some ways of what the world screams at us really is love. All right? So in your program, we're going to fill out some of these. And then I've got some bonus stuff for you. I know you're going to be very excited about the bonus stuff. Um, There's there's a little space at the end there, I think, for some real practical questions about do we love how God's word has called us to love? So what about love? What about love? I don't know why. <laughs> Number one, just make sure, making sure you're awake. Why it's so important. Why is it so important? This is one of the shocking things that we get from God's word. And we're going to look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That everything that we think is wonderful and beautiful that we do for God is nullified without love. It, 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 it is of no good, and even I think this verse, as we'll read it, takes it a step uh, farther. It actually is, does more harm than good. If we are trying to do all these things that we think God needs or God wants us to do, and these aren't bad things necessarily, but without love, it says they can actually be a harmful thing and definitely not a good thing. So 1 Corinthians 13, many of you guys already know uh, the passage we're going to read. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move a mountain, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. That, that right there, it, the, just 
is shocking. And if you've been around um, Christianity a while, you'll see, and I've been guilty of this, an overemphasis maybe on some of these things and, and a lack of love accompanying them. So like I said, these aren't bad things, but it says you could do, so, so if our number one goal as a church, as a follower of Christ is to just have the most beautiful, correct theology that we possibly could have, that we could understand all the nuances and the complications of, of who God is and exactly, you know, explaining every little deep question of Christianity, but, but we weren't loving and, and, Remember, we're going to define what love really is, though. It's not just this feeling that we have. But we, we weren't loving. It, it, would, it would be of no good. It would be irritating, you know. Um, and so if, and like I said, I've been guilty of this, you, you find yourself or you find a community or a group or, or something of, of Christ followers, and their passion has more to do with studying theology than loving people, we, we, we need to turn those around. Study theology. Love it. I'd love to hang out with you if you, if you like doing that. Passion of mine. But if we, if we lack love, it's, it's absolutely useless. It's what the Bible says. Um, these gifts, gift of prophecy, sometimes, oh, what is that? That sounds churchier. That, that really means just speaking God's truth, whatever form that may come. But if we can speak God's truth, if, if we have uh, any of these other gifts that we think are... I, and do you see, I mean, I'm not trying to, trying to uh, get on to anyone, that we elevate these things and sometimes completely lack the most foundational thing of love. Um, it goes on to say in verse 3, If I gave everything I had to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others... I would, gain, I've, I would have gained nothing. Uh, I think a lot of this, too, is if you make your Christian faith about you and your experience and, and what you and even trying to do things in order for you to feel better about yourself or for you to, you know, feel like you can put your head on your pillow and say, I'm a generous person, I'm a compassionate person, um, and you make it more about you than others, then, then we've gained nothing. Uh, Revelation 2, 1 through 5, and we're going to go to this next point, but I want to share with you this, this passage that talks about a church. It's a church in Ephesus, and, and it's Revelation, and so there's a lot of questions surrounding exactly um, what, what it's pointing to. I get a lot of re- requests, like, hey, let's go through the book of Revelation. Uh, we will as soon as I understand it, so. <laughs> but Revelation, <laughs> so we probably never will. Um, but, but ultimately, it's a book that a lot of people in the Christian faith are fearful of. Like, ooh, Revelation, and that's scary, and these things, and ooh, and the beast, and what, and, and the mark of the beast, and, oh, and the Antichrist, and then, and, oh, and we've got to be scared, and oh, no, and it's Trump, I know it. Um, <laughs> all that that comes with Revelation, um, it was given to the early church in a great time of persecution when Christians were being slaughtered for their faith, and Revelation was given to the church as a book of crazy, ridiculous encouragement. 
to remind people, and, and I think these are, this is a little speculative, but um, kind of in a cryptic way, a, a style of writing that was more, more familiar and common to the people back then than it, it is to us, but, but it was given ultimately to say God wins. God's in control. He knows the future. Um, and, and, and so and that's, you could imagine how comforting that was to, to an early church who was going through just devastating things. And, and is God in control? And is this something we're following really of God? And so anyways, all that to say, um, as it walks through uh, this passage, let's, let's just read it. I don't know if I have the very beginning here up, up uh, on the screen for you, but it says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in, the right, in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do, speaking to this church in Ephesus. I've seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. All right, so this, this hey, that sounds like good stuff, but it, it kind of it turns, turns a page here or turns a direction. When, when it says, and, and have, have, here's, a, here's a temptation, I think, for a group of believers to go down this direction. You know what? We call evil, evil. And that's a good thing. And, 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 and we know false teaching, people who claim to be representing the gospel or truth, the good news or Jesus, and they are false teachers and they've got a different gospel. Man, that, we've got the true gospel. We follow God's word. And we recognize and point out those who don't, good, good stuff. But that's not the point of this passage. It goes on to say, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove my lampstand from its place among, your, uh, its place among the churches. But what's so interesting about this passage is number two, here, let's define biblical love. Love is an action, not a feeling. And in that passage, as we get this revelation from God to this church, it's saying, here's what you, you don't love like you used to, and the definition it gives for love is not, you have this overwhelming emotion towards other people. And, and specifically, the frustration is pointed to more directly how they're treating each other within the church family. And it doesn't say you don't have these like feelings that you used to for each other. It says, no, you don't love me and each other as you did at first. Um, Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. That that's what real love is. Biblical love is not emotions. Biblical love is action. In today's world, people make excuses for falling out of relationships by saying, well, I'm not in love anymore. I don't love, I, I don't love the way I used to. I fell out of love. And that would be an opposite. And, more, and I, I mean that as strongly as it comes across. That's hate. That's someone very selfishly saying, what I think of love, and they're using this term that we use, and maybe we, you know, we lack some, some, some uh, 
some uh, ver- words like I'm lacking right now, I guess. Um, but uh, it's actually saying when you say, I'm sorry, Jake. I know where you were best friends before. That's really awkward. Honey, <laughs> friendship-wise, I just don't love you anymore. It's just not there. The spark is gone. I'm not talking to you anymore, Jake. Um, <laughs> let's translate how the Bible would translate that in truth. I'm a selfish, arrogant jerk. And it's all about me. And actually, I'm such a rude, arrogant jerk that I'm going to make me not loving you anymore about me. I'm actually going to play the victim and say, poor me, I fell out of love. I'm losing something I once had. So, sorry, we're done. That's the opposite of biblical love. Is, is something that, it, it, it's love when none of the emotions are there. And yet, you, the, the action of love still, still follows through. Um, what did Jesus teach us? Love your enemies. One of the most shocking things he said, oh, we've heard it, and we, you know, we've got this 2,000 years of history of, of being taught that, this crazy thing that Jesus taught. Now think about applying most of the culture's definition of love, it's this emotional feeling that I have that, that when things aren't exciting, uh, it, it fades away and I can lose it, to Jesus saying, love your enemies. Well, by definition, I have zero feeling of, of, of you know, kind of exhilaration or compassion towards someone who's my enemy. That's maybe how I would define that you are my enemy, Right? Definition of enemy in our culture. I don't love you. (laughs) I don't have any loving feelings towards you. You're my enemy. Do you see how weird and confusing that is to our culture? But then we say love our enemy, and then how we translate it, because we think it's all about feeling. We go, "Ah, well, I got to, like, feel something, and, like, I got to feel something towards my enemy. When I don't, they're my enemy. And so when Jesus was asked this question in Luke 6, 32 uh, through 36, um, he defined it because they were trying to trap him. They were trying to make him look bad. And they said, hey, what, what's the greatest command? And Jesus says to love God and, and to love others and to love your neighbor as yourself is how he specifically put it. And then as they kept, kept on pressing him and, and trying to, and, and maybe intrigued at that point, what did they ask? Well, who's your neighbor? And so he gave, he gave uh, the, the famous story of the Good Samaritan. I'm sorry, that's in Luke 10, 25. We won't read it this morning. But as he describes what the Good Samaritan does in loving, what does the Good Samaritan do? Does it have anything to do with emotions? That might be a part of it. But it, No. He says all these other people who say that they love God passed by a person who was robbed and beat up and half dead on the side of the road. The Good Samaritan comes by and takes care of this person. Doesn't even have a conversation. Doesn't know the personality of this person. Never gets to speak to this person. The the picture that we get is this person's like half passed out and half dead. And somehow he, he gets them and drags them to an inn and gives more money 
to make sure that he's taken care of as, as he goes on his way. He says, that, that's your neighbor, and that's what loving your neighbor looks like. And it's all action-based of here's what I do, and here's how I live, and here's how I put other people before me. I, I, don't, I, know, I don't know this guy at all. Very, very different definition from our culture. Number three, here's the revealing checklist as we wrap up this morning to get really practical. Because, you know, it's one thing we can pontificate about how there's a different biblical definition of love. But I hope we can get super practical in what does that look like in my life. If God has done all those beautiful things we talked about earlier for 11 chapters in Romans, and he has done that, um, what is my response to love other people? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It gives this beautiful picture, the biblical definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Can you imagine the next romantic comedy hitting the movie theaters and like this be like some kind of something they capture on the screen to get you to go? This intense love story. This dude is patient. Just not how we define it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. And so here's the list I want to share with you to just do a little self-examination. I had to do this myself as, we, as I went through this. So number one, how do I respond to hurt or disappointment? How do I respond to hurt or disappointment? Because as the definition is laid out, because sometimes, you know, we just hear, oh, I've heard this scripture and I've heard sermons over this and what is this? Okay, that's, that's pretty nice. Let's go eat lunch. But, but what does this look like? If, if I'm hurt, if I'm disappointed, That's what the beginning definition has to do with being patient and being kind. Patient, uh, another term, some of your translations might even put it this way. Really, uh, it's long-suffering that that I can uh, endure um, something that's hard and difficult. So how do I respond? How do I respond if people uh, have to give me some hurtful news? Do people feel like they have to walk on eggshells around me because of the way I may respond? Or do I, am I a loving person? Number two, am I willing to put others first? And you could kind of apply that to the whole list, that it's, oh, that's what it's focused on. That's what it's focused on, others, others. But specifically, it talks about being jealous or envious and, and, and worrying about other people being elevated instead of me being elevated. Don't be boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. Am I trying to lift myself up and I get irritated that other people are lifted up and I'm not? Do I have that kind of sense of self-importance 
and I look down on other people. So am I willing to put other people... It's okay if other people get credit, other people get praise. It's, it's not something that I, I seek out and I just have to have. Number three, how do I respond when I'm wronged? Do I fly off the handle? Am I irritated that people would cut me off in traffic? How dare you? I deserve better. No, you don't. Do I let things go or do I hold on to them? You guys ever had those relationships? Don't say a name. Don't look, make eye contact. <laughs> Where it's like for 92 years ago, you did something and they bring it up. You know, you're like, wow. Sometimes I'm thankful that I don't remember stuff real well. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait, I totally forgot about <laughs> Kristen's like, not so much. Well, I forget a lot of things, I think, sometimes. I'm like, who's that? That's, that's your mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I think uh, sometimes I'm surprised when I sit down with people and walk through with them maybe a difficult time in their life or difficult relationships just, man, they've been holding on to every detail of what, how someone did them wrong. And you can't believe, and they wore the same dress as me. And so I'm like, really? Just petty, silly things. And sometimes serious things, though. But still, do we understand how much we've been forgiven and how there's, we will never come close to having to, to forgive the level that we've been forgiven. And we should respond in that way. So we don't keep records of wrong. I've had people as a preacher, uh, years later, come out and they're like, I was really mad at you because you preached that sermon and I know you used that illustration and you were talking about me. I'm like, guys, just for the record, I don't ever do that. And, you know, there's like similar things that we run into because we're all human and like the Bible addresses like humans living in this world. And so sometimes it may feel like, you know, real personal and close to you. But I've had that happen. People sit down and go, on March... 2013, you, and I'm like, wow, I don't, I have no recollection, you know, and it's not directed towards you. I'm just trying to be faithful and honest to what the Bible is saying here. But I feel so bad for such a long time. There's just such frustration and, 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 and uh, stuff that's keeping them in prison. So um, uh, there, there's so many in, the, in there. Uh, but number four is, how do I respond to sinful behavior? How do I respond when other people are not honoring God with, with how they're living? Because um, it says to be love, uh, to have love and kindness, um, full of love and grace is what Jesus was described as having. But I love how it doesn't, it, it, it almost says like, okay, I, I know that the p- pendulum could swing way this way. Because that's what we often do. You go, okay, we're just supposed to love and be tolerant. That's a cultural value. And not judge anyone. And, but, but it says, no, it doesn't rejoice in, in things that are wrong. So don't, as we're being love, loving and compassionate and kind, that doesn't mean that, you know, just everything's okay and your truth is okay and that's fine. No, God, God has given us his clear truth on certain things. 
And, but in a gentle, kind, compassionate way, we can share that truth. We live in a do not offend culture, right? Did Jesus offend people? So much so they killed him. So, so that's not, so in this whole love chapter, it's saying, but don't rejoice in wrong. Don't rejoice in, in things that are, that are uh, hurting other people. And, and then uh, number five, do I assume the best or the worst about people? And, and that one's really challenging for me. Sometimes I'll just dismiss people who, who okay, well, they messed up at, at this point or they, had the, they were disappointing at this point, and so let's just move on and and it says, well, real love is always hopeful that God's always at work, especially, I think, towards believers, that, hey, the Holy Spirit's in a believer's heart. And that there can always be this, there's this lifelong transformation happening. And so we're always supposed to be hopeful and think the best about the situation. You know, when your husband's late coming home from work, are you like, I know what he's doing. He's off. He doesn't care about anything. Or are you, are you your first reaction is, well, there's probably a good reason, and they may be doing this, or he might have, oh, poor guy, he's probably in traffic or whatever. It's, it's just an attitude we choose to have. Um, but love um, assumes the best. Uh, it doesn't believe every rumor you hear. It actually squashes rumors when there's no, doesn't seem to be any real legitimate, you know, uh, reason for things people might be saying about others. But it never gives up. It never loses faith. God can absolutely transform anyone. And it's always hopeful. So as we wrap up this morning, do you love as God defines it? That's the challenge as we go through this. And, and, and at Romans 5, 8, the last verse I wanted to share with you is, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Do you see God's great love for us? wasn't that he had this burning emotional feeling, not that that couldn't be a part of it. No, it was demonstrated that he did this incredible act for us, and that's what we're called to do.